Welcome to the Faith is Not Blind podcast. I'm Bruce Hafen, and today we're in Oakland, California. We're talking to Marcus Covert. Marcus, thanks for coming across the bay to see us today. Welcome. It's a, it's a ple pleasure, a pleasure, and a privilege. I said, talk. You came across the bay. What do What do you do in, in real life? So uh, I'm a professor of bioengineering at Stanford, and I um, I study what's called systems and synthetic biology. It's a way of thinking about how cells work, how tissue works, thinking about it as a whole. And uh, so it's a, it's a hot, very exciting new field that I love being a part of. What would be an example of something that's hot? Well, so what our lab is best known for is that we created the first ever computer model of a cell that takes all of the genes into account and mm. uses that to actually oh. predict how that cell can behave. Wow. So it's, uh, it's kind of a revolution because um, when you think about it, like the way that we use computers and mathematics has revolutionized all the sciences, right? It's how we have things yeah. like uh, these new phones, airplanes, but now it needs to happen in biology. Right. So. Well, what an opportunity for us to talk to somebody who's, who's into that, into that world as far as you are with the credentials that you have. Uh, what we want to talk about is your personal journey of faith. Where you were before, you're, you're sort of, you know, you, you received uh, all the education you could find and you've been adding to it with your own research. Uh, you must have encountered a few surprises along the way. And what has that led to? Where are you now? Why don't you just start from, from an early stage with your growing up years? Yeah, sure. So I have loved science since forever, and I, I love it, and I consider it, uh, I think particularly important here is I consider it a search for truth in almost the same way that I consider my gospel study mm. a search for truth. And I think that, um, that I've always, as a result, I've been trained to have questions, you know, in, the, in my scientific training. And I've been trained to just look for answers for those. And, and have, you, have you always been put together that way? What were you like when you were young? Uh, I was gospel truth. Right. If my family, if my mom was here watching me, I would be forced to say I was a high energy, difficult to um, difficult to contain in class, very enthusiastic, but very um, headstrong student. Mm. So, right, so in chemistry, uh, in high school, I set my final exam on fire. It was the first time I heard any bad language from uh, a teacher as she came to try to put out this fire, but it wasn't the last <laughs> time I heard So, bad language, what, what were you spiritually at that age? Uh, I was lucky to grow up in a, a home of, uh, that was relatively young in the gospel. And for me, that gave me a lot of... Um, I felt like I was raised to question. I was raised to think independently. I had parents and siblings, uh, my, my sisters, who we had, we had and have deep and exciting discussions about things. Uh, it was a very, uh, it was a great upbringing in that way. What, what was your, how can I put it, your earliest kind of significant spiritual formative experience that found, what, helped you create a foundation spiritually for what would happen the rest of your life? Yeah. Let me tell you one, I mean, I could think of some that I could tell you that would, that would maybe sound, uh, you know, I could talk about my upbringing or religion or uh, mission, but I think maybe what would be the most interesting in this context would be the first time I realized that I didn't have to worry about anything I found in science. 
We'll talk about that, yeah. So um, I had finished college and I knew where I was going to go. I was going to go into this new field of bioengineering. I was really excited about it. But I, I did perceive that there were potential problems between um, you know, what science uh, believes and accepts and what I thought maybe I could accept in a faith level. And the big one I think that I still get asked all the time is about evolution. And so I'd wondered about this and thought about it. And, uh, and I went to this, one day I went to this talk and it was a Nobel laureate Christian de Duve, who was speaking, and he was speaking about evolution. And in particular, he was speaking about how we can um, look at it, evolu evolution in a new way. And he said something really interesting uh, about how evolution can still reconcile with something that, that is predictive. And it, I could go into this all in detail, but the key thing that he said was he looked at the audience and explaining kind of these equations and this thing that he said, and he said, so what we've really found is that chance does not preclude inevitability. And so the chance that we think of when we think of randomness and mutations and evolution happening over time uh, doesn't mean that you can't actually predict the outcome. Uh, and he explained this in a way that I'd be happy to share, but... The most important thing to me is I watched this and heard him say it. I realized that I was feeling the spirit. Mm -hmm. And I actually felt moved to tears in this moment, listening to this incredible man give this incredible talk in which he was not trying to share religion with me at all. But I realized that, that all of a sudden there was this interdisciplinarity for me between science and faith and that I really could use either one to access the other. So knowing you could use either either one to, to for your search, I think your earlier comment was you learned you didn't have to worry. What were you worried about? I think the worry is that, that there's a potential tension, you know, that I'm reaching out uh, in science, but I'm doing things that maybe we can't accept if we're a member of the church. Of course, that turns out not even to be correct, I now know, but at the time, this worried me. So you worried that it would threaten your own faith? Yeah, I worried maybe, I think in the time I might have worried more that uh, just how, you know, to some people, just for me to say right now I believe in the principles of evolution, right, might feel like, oh, whoa, maybe he's an edgy Mormon, right, or a liberal Mormon in some way. But I think I realized that my job was simply to follow the truth where it led in a positive kind of faith-focused way and that the answers would come. And they might come in a big lecture hall hearing a brilliant mm -hmm. scientist yeah, share this yeah. truth that they had learned, and they might come while I'm sitting in a congregation or visiting somebody who I've been asked to serve, you know, there are many ways that they can come, but the truth is kind of the same. Mm. That was the important yeah. part. Yeah, and what an interesting context in which to receive the spiritual assurance that you did. It was clear. You knew what that was. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, as, as you've gone on, Marcus, in, uh, as you've become specialized, you know, you're teaching at, at Stanford in a field like genetics, uh, the world has become so secular um, I wouldn't want to guess what the threats have been. What's, what's the, since those, that early experience, your question of his talk about evolution, what would you say is the biggest challenge to your religious faith that you encountered uh, all along the way? 
Hmm, that's a really interesting question. I think, well, maybe I'll, I'll push back on just that concept for a second because I think once I, you know, I've definitely had challenges to my faith, but I think I think about them differently than maybe people think that you have to think about a death. Well, yeah, explain that, yeah. So as a scientist, I think there's a real humility in science, in the search for truth as a scientist, right? So for example, as a scientist, I'm very well aware that I have only a child's idea of how the universe works. And it doesn't bother me to hear a new thing. And I also don't feel so tied to it that I couldn't be convinced if the evidence was strong enough to convince me. I think sometimes what's really interesting, you know, for me to add truth to the world, that's like a PhD, for example, it's five years, it's 10,000 hours of work. And if you're lucky, you might be able to add a sentence to a textbook one day, right, with all that. And I think if you think about one of these students, you know, they spend these 10,000 hours and typically the way that it works is they might spend you know, many thousand hours just mastering the basic principles. Yeah, what's right? already there. Yeah. Right. And then they start to reach out. And that can be really intense, right? What often happens is someone will come to me at 6,000 hours and be like, you know, nothing I'm doing seems to work. And I'll be like, don't worry. You're right on track. Like, let's keep going. And at 7,000 hours, they start to say, you know, I'm starting to question the basic fundamentals of, science. of this area, yeah, this right? Part of science, yeah. And I'll say, yeah, good. You should be doing that. Like, let's let's see where that goes. 8,000 hours, you know, still, I'll say, you know, you've only spent this much time. Just keep going. Usually around the last year, they start to pull together. They say, okay, here are the big fundamentals that I really feel like I've got. And they have this new humility and they think, okay, here of everything I've done, this is the thing that I think really is something new. And they pull it together. And then they walk out with this PhD, but also with just this glimmer of new insight that civilization will hold, right? That civilization will bring. And it's funny for me, like when I was, for example, in the bishopric in the Stanford Ward, we have brilliant students, we have brilliant young professionals, they're incredible. Um, a lot of times though, just given the nature of the internet, given the nature of the way we share information now, someone will come and they will say, well, I saw this on the internet, right? And I'll say, well, how long have you been thinking about it? And I'll be like, well, I probably spent about an hour on it, you know? A full hour. And for me as a scientist, that's very, like I would say, okay, you're not even close. Like when I have a concern, I don't think of it as a, as a thing I'm scared of. I think of it as a challenge that I'm excited to look into because I know both from science and from faith that that's going to bring me somewhere really special. So you know that from experience. You, you, yes. This is an opportunity to learn instead of an opportunity to run away. Right. Especially after a whole hour. Keep keep going. I, yeah, well, I think that's the special thing about it. If you draw the analogy clearly, like definitely as you search for truth, even in the gospel, right? If you're going the right way, right? Finding more confusion might mean you're getting closer, right? Finding more complexity. Finding, you know, seeming paradoxes, that might just be the thing that's uh, going to catalyze the exact insight you need. So are you saying that maybe running into what we sometimes call complexity or paradoxes is actually a, uh, 
an indication that your search is growing, maturing, it's going to take you somewhere instead of taking you out? Yeah, that's exactly right. How, what the, why, how does paradox help with that? How does conflict and uncertainty help? Well, you know, God loves paradox. The first thing we learn in the Bible, pretty much, is that humans are destined to encounter a paradox. I mean, that's the great story of Adam and Eve, right? Is to have two seemingly contradictory commandments. And I think too often, this is now maybe getting a little bit on the engineering side, too often we think about the commandments as a set of equations that all have to fit exactly in order, like that are equalities as opposed to like an optimization problem where we're trying to make the best decision and what we have are these guidelines and the Holy Ghost to guide us and then the precious gift of our own choice, right? And so we're trying to find the best thing. The beauty of, um, of the atonement is that we don't have to be perfect, right? Kind of as Steinbeck said, we don't have to be perfect so we can be good. And so um, as a result of this, we know we're not going to be able to, to keep every single thing perfectly because there is so much, right? Instead, our job is to find the best. So uh, this is how you have, you know, you've encountered challenges of this kind. You've learned to thrive, thirst for challenges. They feed your hunger to learn. Yeah. And you've learned that they will, they will feed you. Uh, I have the impression, just from watching your experience and hearing other things you've talked about, you've made your way through that to a stage uh, where you're kind of, beyond just paradox, uncertainty, you know, you didn't land there and stay there, there's a more settled rest in your attitudes uh, about spiritual things. I don't know if that affects the scientific things. Uh, where are you now in your relationship with the Lord, with the spiritual things that you've been interested in all your life? Uh, is, your, is your faith and testimony, is it any different now from this maturing process than it was before you got into it? Yeah. I would say it's it's different, and it, at first I worried as I was, uh, you know, I'm sure as you're talking to different people, people have gone through questions, and I don't want to trivialize those at all, right? I think when people go through a challenge, you know, it's easy for me, for example, as the, as the PhD advisor, it's easy for me to say to my student, oh, you're going to be great. They don't see that. They have not experienced that, right? But what they see is I am beating my head against the wall against this problem. And um, so I don't want to trivialize that. Like that's real and it's a, it's a challenge. And for me also, as I've gone through different questions, you know, it can be frustrating, it can be a challenge. Uh, and sometimes as I was going through those kinds of questions, I wondered if I was going farther away, right? I think now I realize that that's part of the process at Stanford, we have a wonderful, very now uh, prominent uh, psychologist named Carol Dweck. And she talks about what's called a growth mindset. And this is something they try to now are trying to raise children with. Like if you tell a child that, oh, you're so great at math, you're so great at these things, when they come up with their first challenge, when they don't get it, they don't get the problem, they're devastated, right? And so she recommends instead that we teach ch uh, children like, to love a challenge, to go after, you know, a, a problem, to tackle a problem, right? And I wonder sometimes, like for me, what's happened really is that I've moved the same way, right? Instead of feeling like I have a great testimony, I know everything, and then being devastated when I hear this new thing, I have a, I'd say, a growth mindset of testimony, right? Like, I like a challenge. I'm excited 
to, I run to new insight, right? And I know that the way to that is, you know, a valley to a peak, right? Like that mm. you, that you're on your way to good things and you can kind of enjoy that even as it's driving you nuts, you know, yeah. the same way that it does when I'm in the lab. And Do you think the Lord wants us to learn like that? Speaking for myself, I definitely feel that way, right? I feel, for me, it's empowering. It's empowering to feel like, okay, uh, I mean, the beauty, the first story we learn in the restoration, of course, is that that a 14-year-old boy, right, really what that's supposed to mean is anyone, anyone can walk into the woods and they can come out transformed, right? They can come out with knowledge that they could not have gotten any other way. But from the way you've described it, it's not, it's not as simple. I, I go into the woods, I say my prayer, I take a full 15 minutes, I come out, and I'm transformed. You've been describing something much more complex and long-term than that. Yeah, that's right. And uh, brings us back to this story, right? I think uh, when we talk about the, the, um, you know, the story that, that we love from the Book of Mormon about um, the tree of life, you know, the... Lehi actually tells this story multiple times, and then Lehi and then uh, Lehi tells it, then Nephi tells it. When Lehi first tells it, it's actually exactly what I'm talking about, right? He says he has this vision, right? He sees this 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 glorified being, and the being says to him, you know, follow me. And it's easy to miss because it's so short. He says, I followed him, and when I did that, I found myself in the middle of this dark wasteland. And then the next phrase is so telling to me, right? Because the next phrase is, and after I'd wandered about in there for the space of many hours, you know, I think too often we trivialize, right? How long it really can take to have, to have those experiences, right? And how in the, in the internet on demand, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people uh, might even think this is now absurd, it's, it's extreme, but just this idea of like, well, can I click and... Can I just click my way to, you know, now a, a, an experience, right? Can I click my way to a conviction? Um, I once was walking in the beautiful UCSD campus, and it was a quiet morning, and I was walking, and it was just me, myself, and I actually I was having a question like this. I was saying, you know, we know so much about how to teach people. We know so much about how to get people's attention and to kind of compel them almost to, to, to watch more and... I was thinking, why don't we do, why doesn't the spirit work like that? Like, why doesn't the, you know, if Heavenly Father wanted to, he could just dump this, yeah. you know, and he could really get our attention. And as I was walking, I was thinking about that. I was thinking, it seems so inefficient, you know. And um, and then I, again, I felt, as I was doing that, I felt like, well, it depends on what you're trying to teach. If you're just only trying to teach the principles of the gospel, then yeah, maybe you should just teach them that, like a brain dump, right? But if you're trying to teach how to listen, if you're trying to teach how to make your own decisions. And how to live, maybe. Yeah, there's actually no shortcut to that, right? There's certain things, it's interesting at Google, uh, there's this, uh, where I've kind of consulted for, for a few years, there's this um, interesting thing because they often try to parallelize everything, right? They try to parallelize. And, uh, and they've realized that there are some things you can't accelerate. Mm. And uh, somebody, somebody brought it up in a way that's now been passed down. Uh, 
somebody brought up kind of sarcastically, well, why can't we just do all of this with a baby, right? Like, why can't you have a baby in 10 seconds, right? And everybody realizes right away, of yeah, course, yes, you can't yeah. have something that precious and meaningful yeah. in that much time, no matter how much we yeah. parallelize yes, or compress. Yeah, description of experience. Yeah. Uh, before we run out of time, I want yeah, to ask sure. a specific question. You're a geneticist. You know a lot about DNA. You know a lot about the Book of Mormon. What, what, what would you say to a, to a young Latter-day Saint, to any Latter-day Saint, who hears that there's some question about, the, about DNA in the Book of Mormon? Can, will, will DNA evidence tell us uh, that everything in the Book of Mormon is true? And if it doesn't tell us that, does that mean it's not true? What do you say to people who are running into those issues? Yeah, I think this is speaking for myself, but I guess the first thing that anyone would need to know is that, that I have thought a lot about that, right? And I've looked at those things, and I'm not bothered or troubled by those things, right? So um, I don't think it's wise for someone to go in guns blazing and feel like they can explain the DNA evidence, you know, for or against the Book of Mormon. I think those things are... Um, as a scientist, I would just say, okay, I'm ready to learn, right? I realize that there's so much more to find. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, but that recently they've had these incredible studies where they've discovered that uh, they might only know a small fraction of, of the thing, of even the buildings that currently exist regarding kind of American ancient civilizations. And, uh, and what that just tells me is there's so much to learn. Like at every scale, not just... so much just, that we don't know yeah, and can't prove. Right. And I guess what, what uh, for me is a, is a blessing is that I don't feel like I need to know. Uh, I feel like my, even as much as I know about the way the world works, it's just the tiniest fraction. And I think if I were able to somehow see exactly how everything works in this world, I would be astonished at how completely infantile like our current knowledge is, mm -hmm. right? So I'm... I'm not troubled by it because I know that there are a million, a million problems and complexities that have to be addressed, and it's just our privilege to go in and start mm. trying to figure them out. Interesting to me how you're, you know, some people would think that a person who has, a, who has the credentials you do, who's done the research that you do, has been in the places, been on the edges of science and life, that you would you would be, you'd be pretty proud of knowing all this stuff. What I sense from you is just the opposite, market, Marcus. There's a kind of humility that comes uh, that's interesting. And where does that come from? Yeah, it's really interesting that you say that. I mean, I, I, don't, know, I don't know if people who know me would necessarily say I'm, I'm very humble, so I appreciate that. But, the, uh, but I do think... Um, you know, it's almost cliche. Socrates said, you know, uh, to know uh, true wisdom is lying that you, it lies in knowing that you know nothing, right? So people, philosophers like Michel de Montaigne, they said, basically the thing that you learn from that is the one way not to be able to learn is to think you already know, right? And so what can really happen that's negative is somebody, let's say it goes online, they hear something and now flip, a switch has been flipped and now they are no longer able to listen on this topic, right? And it's sad because the only reason they can't learn is because they think they know, uh. right? You're turned off at that point. And so really, I think a mark of, a, of an open intellect that I would strive for and aspire to is to always be totally open, right? Just 
open to everything, right? Let's hear it. Yeah, let's yeah. hear it and let's weigh it and talk about it. Final question. Uh, you are talking to a, a young person who's running into the kind of conflicts we're seeing, really stuck, really kind of uprooted. Uh, what would you say? Yeah. Well, the first thing I would say is I recognize that that's hard. Right? I recognize that that's hard and the hardest part is sometimes, and you have this also in your book and other people have remarked on this, sometimes other people can make you feel when you're in a situation like that, like maybe you don't belong in the church. And it can be people in or out of the church. It can be like, well, you know, if you believe this, you know, or if you don't believe this, like this isn't the right place for you. But I would say follow your feelings follow your uh, you know your ideally in a positive way a positive search you know go after the truth and do it in a positive way and I really feel like guidance will come truth will come you'll learn it a little bit at a time you shouldn't expect it all to come at once and just don't let anybody tell you that you where you do or don't belong just you know take those things that bring you joy and keep growing in yeah, faith. interesting. Persist, persist in the dark and dreary wasteland, hard yeah. as it is. And it sounds like both you and Lehi have discovered the same thing. Yeah. You will be led to the tree of life. And maybe one more thing that's kind of interesting. Like, I've always loved this idea of Jacob wrestling this angel, right? And sometimes when people wrestle with a question, it's almost like they're wrestling with an angel. You know, they're wrestling. They're trying. I like the idea, the image of wrestling. And what Jacob says to the angel is so interesting, right? I will not let you go until you give me a blessing. Don't let those questions go. Just take them, wrestle, have that wrestle. Tell, the, tell God, pray that you want to do this and you want the blessings that will come from this. And then you can be, like they say, the children of Israel. All Israel means is one who wrestles with God. Right? And we can really take that, right? We can take that on ourselves by getting part, you know, rolling up our sleeves and saying, let's, let's work on this. You know, it's not just going to be easy. Let's roll the sleeves. Yeah. You know, that's what is, is even desired. Yeah. That blessing came. Love the energy. Love the peace and the confidence. Yeah. Thank you, Marcus, yeah. for it's sharing a pleasure, with us today. Truly.